Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. The most fascinating part of India is that slums seem to have developed herd immunity because of some of the most congested slums in Mumbai and other parts of the country had in excess of 50 to 60% positive antibodies. That's Kiran Mazumdar Shaw. She's the founder and executive chairperson of Biocon, a biopharmaceutical company based in India. Her entrepreneurial spirit took hold when she was only 25, at a time when women in that industry and culture faced steep obstacles. EY recently named her Entrepreneur of the Year, and Time Magazine has named her one of the 100 most influential people in the world. She spoke with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman Mike Milken two weeks before she would test positive for COVID-19. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. India has gone under dramatic change in the last decade or so. The country that in many ways is the backbone in technology for so many companies in the world is your home. Before we talk about your response to COVID-19 crisis, I'd like to talk about your life's journey and how you got here. You're the EY Entrepreneur of the Year in 2020. A fantastic honor. So let's go back and talk about the path you thought you might be on as a young girl. I did my bachelor's degree in biology, chemistry, and botany. And then I decided to pursue a very unusual master's program. It was my late father, who himself was a brewmaster, who decided that maybe one of his children should actually be influenced with his own profession. And he made me take up this program near Melbourne in Australia. And I actually did very well in that program. I planned to pursue a professional career in brewing. So I came back to India full of aspirations to really have a brewery put in my charge. And that was not to be because I was told that this is not a job for a woman. And you can understand how I felt after pursuing such an unconventional kind of a program to be told that I wasn't wanted. So it was a very despondent state that I was in. And it was almost kind of a rebellious streak in me that kind of made me accept a offer from an Irish biotech entrepreneur who said, hey, would you like to partner me in starting a biotech company in India? And I said, listen, I have no clue about how to run a business. I have no money to invest in that business. And I've just been told that a woman is not welcome in the business world in India. So I don't know whether it's a good idea, but he persuaded me. He gave me a lot of confidence and he said, go for it. And so I did. And that's how I started my entrepreneurial career in 1978. And I was 25 years old at that time. I was a young woman and it wasn't exactly a welcoming environment for a woman who was trying to start up a company in biotech, which nobody understood. So it was tough in the beginning. Of course, I wasn't taken seriously. I was considered high risk by everyone. The banks didn't want to lend to me. People didn't want to work for me. And even businesses were very wary about doing business with me. You have received the Order of Australia, Australia's highest civil honor. How has the world changed for women and their opportunities? 
when I was building Biocon, it wasn't a place for a woman in the business world. Today, I think things are very different for women in India, at least in urban India. And the reason I say that is because we have the leading banks in India being headed by women. We have a large number of women-led startups in India. The tech space has a lot of women. I'm on the board of a company called Infosys. And Infosys has a very high level of women techies working in that company. We have uh, close to 35% of women working in the software sector in India. So things have come a long way. In fact, the head of the software industry body is a very bright woman. And the head of Intel in India is a very bright woman. Almost 40% of my scientists are women. Women are far more confident than they used to be. And there are far more opportunities for women in urban India. But I wouldn't say the same is true of rural India, where they still struggle, where women still have a tough time getting into the economic mainstream. So I think that's where we are really focusing on making sure that women have equal opportunities. And the good thing is, that the present government have really done a lot to empower women in many, many ways, starting with making sure that women have toilets to go to just to give them that dignity, I think is a big improvement that women are seeing in rural India. The women have now been given bank accounts so that they can be economically independent and so on and so forth. So I think hopefully in the next 10 years, you will see a big improvement for the status of women in India. As the cities have grown throughout India, Bangalore, where you live, I think has about 10 million people. It's the center of technology for so many companies. At the beginning, Bangalore was one of the key examples of a city where the virus had not spread, just maybe a couple hundred cases. As you see, the number of cases in India increased dramatically. When we talk about social distancing, I don't have to tell you, large parts of India, it's impossible to have social distancing. So give us the view from a pretty modern city like Bangalore and then from other parts of your country. India has about 1.8 million cases to date, and we have just over 38,000 deaths in the country. If you look at Bangalore in that context, Bangalore has over 50,000 cases to date, and we have about 2,500 deaths so far. Now, if you think about it, the percentage mortality is much lower than the world average. And for a country the size of India, that's pretty good news. We used to call it the Bangalore model for COVID management up until the end of May. But the truth is that up until the end of May, India was in a lockdown. And during the lockdown, states like Bangalore and the state that I'm in, Karnataka, was doing very well because they were using technology to trace and track every single outbreak. And their contact tracing was amazing. For every one positive case, they could contact trace between 45 to 50 people. And so therefore, we kept that disease under check. But the moment the unlocking happened, I think people were under the impression that the virus has been chased away. 
and we can now go back to normal life and that was a big mistake so i think that suddenly saw this surge in infections and now i think the government is scrambling to try and get back to the containment and quarantine methodologies that they had adopted during the lockdown time which is now very difficult to pull back having said that we are now trying to triage patients into sort of mild moderate and severe so that we don't overwhelm our hospitals and at the moment the hospitals are just about coping so we just hope that our mortality rates don't increase but the good news is we are also getting better and better treatment so i think the number of people who are on ventilators are reducing and we just hope that we get things back into control now it is forecast that india is going to start peaking at different times at different parts of the country because we are like a mini europe we have different states with different ethnicities and with different kind of densities of populations the most fascinating part of india is that slums seem to have developed herd immunity because a zero surveillance that they did in some of the most congested slums in mumbai and other parts of the country had in excess of 50 to 60% positive antibodies which means that these very congested areas have actually developed herd immunity which is a good thing rural india i'm told has actually practiced its own containment and isolation they are not allowing people to come into their villages from outside because they are scared of the virus infecting them so in their own way they have actually practiced their own form of lockdown so that's why i think the death levels at the moment are quite low so it's quite fascinating to see behavior all around the country the cities worst affected are bangalore chennai mumbai delhi and all the big cities they are the ones who are worst affected but they are peaking one by one so it's being forecast that by the end of uh, november all the big cities would have peaked by then at least that's the expectation when you talked about the rural villages there's another side of this covid-19 crisis and that is the economic side india has a very large informal society and so that informal society if they're not working or they're not out doing odd jobs they're not bringing in any money what's the government response and your company's response let me start by saying that this has been a human tragedy of a huge magnitude because we've had an exodus the migrant labor these people come from villages to work in cities and the moment the pandemic broke out in all the cities i think the government had not anticipated that these large droves of migrant labor would want to go back to their villages and the government kept sort of insisting that they stay back in the cities but they hadn't provided enough support to them to stay back so they all decided to venture back and it was like the exodus that happened during the independence time these huge caravans of people migrating back to their villages we started distributing food kits and the government in the meantime realized that they had to swing in so they decided to basically give them a small handout for a period of time a minimum sort of income and then they started a lot of economic activities in the rural hinterland where they could then be employed so that's what they've tried to do to create some of these rural infrastructure projects where they are going to hire these people and give them some employment so 
today it's all about livelihood so the first part of the pandemic was about saving lives now it's about saving livelihoods and that's what's happening across the country things are slowly limping back to normalcy we are finding a lot of the labor now coming back to their jobs as the economy opens up but it's taken a huge toll india's had not only workers move to cities in india but it's had large numbers of workers move to other countries how has that played out during this coronavirus india did a very good thing they actually sent flights to bring back a lot of these people back to india and sort of they rehabilitated them and they made sure that they had something to come back to in terms of at least having a roof over their heads i'm on the board of infosys and infosys also sent a few flights to the us so that they could come back so i think everyone's tried to do whatever they can to get people back to india in case they were stranded and had no means to live in those countries so i think a lot has been done in that sense we've had the honor of being in the giving pledge together how have you led your company and how your own philanthropic activities over the last 5 to 6 months we reached out to a lot of the poor communities around the country we looked at providing them with small amounts of money basically to just survive every month so we have given that to at least 10000 families the poorer slums and migrant labor communities in the country we've helped a lot of the construction workers because there have been a lot of construction workers who have lost their livelihoods we've made sure that the, the contractors have actually created camps for these construction workers made sure that they've been fed we've done a lot of that as well a food of course has been distributed giving them a lot of amenities for their children in addition to that we've also distributed a lot of free medicines we've actually done a lot of testing for the government we have a covid-19 testing laboratory in our facility and we do a lot of rt pcr and antibody tests and antigen tests in our labs we are supporting all the government hospitals with these tests for the patients we are actually considered to be the number one private lab that has given them free testing for all the patients so that's another part of our contribution to the covid management crisis we've also bought a lot of ppes and masks and what have you to distribute to a lot of the hospitals the covid care centers so we've done all of that have you discovered anything as you've looked in this area that has applications that might be able to control covid-19 we actually have a very very exciting monoclonal antibody which we had developed for autoimmune indications like psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis which we are now repurposing for covid-19 because of its very very unique mechanism of action this is an igg1 anti cd6 targeting antibody now the beauty of cd6 is that it is actually overexpressed on effector t cells and these effector t cells trigger a hyper immune response which actually causes cytokine release 
which is why you get these autoimmune responses in, in some of the diseases I mentioned. And if you remember, in the early stages, it was being treated like ARDS or pneumonia, and they were just sort of giving it its normal treatment. And then they found lots of people were dying, and they couldn't figure out why they were dying. And they found that it wasn't just about a pneumonia-like situation, but it was actually because of a cytokine storm that was causing this intense inflammation and hyperimmune activity in the body that was reducing the oxygen intake into the lungs, causing this organ failure because of the huge load of cytokines and causing almost like a sepsis-like condition in the body and patients were dying. If you remember, a lot of then antibodies were being tried to see if they could intercept this cytokine storm. IL-6s have been tried. And then when I looked at what was happening with many of these antibodies, these were antibodies targeting single cytokines. And that's why it was not as effective as it should be. In our case, we downregulate the entire cytokine cascade. And so we felt that this had a better chance of actually arresting the cytokine storm than taking one cytokine at a time. So we did a proof of concept study in India with our drug, and we got some very compelling results. All the patients who took our drug recovered very well. And in the small control arm, which did not take our drug, we had quite a few deaths. We got an emergency use approval from the regulator in India. We just received it a couple of weeks ago. And in these two weeks, we've actually treated over a thousand patients in India. And most of them have recovered. So I think we are very, very encouraged by this data. We have also licensed this drug to a San Diego-based company, Equilium, and they now want to actually start COVID trials in the U.S. We are hoping that we can do something to save lives with this drug. Many of the immunology drugs, as you know, that energize your immune system had to control the cytokine storm because you could energize it at too high a level. And so we've been looking at that opportunity. One of the other areas, when I think of education, I think of India. Those individuals born into the lowest socioeconomic, in many ways, their only path was education. And I know when we have kids talking about competition in the United States, many of our own scholars have told us the competition is a hundred times more in India as it is in the United States. So the concern over schools, the operation of schools, the educational system, how do you see that challenge being met? For every parent, I think they live to educate their children so that they can have a better life. And it's amazing to see how these kids, when they're given an opportunity to educate themselves and how well many of them do, and many of them who are really bright get on to coming to the universities in the U.S. And when you hear stories of Satya Nadella and Sundar Pichai, they come from very, very modest families back in India. And they've just done so well because they're just so bright and intelligent. And for them, their, their parents educated them by sacrificing many things in their homes. So I think these are wonderful stories. Now, India basically has just come out with the national education policy. 
So we have a huge problem where you have schools, but you don't have teachers and you have children who want to educate themselves. There's a mismatch between the number of schools and the number of teachers. I think technology is beginning to address a lot of these deficits, even though all of us have grown up in a pre-computer age, so to speak. And therefore, we believe you cannot deliver good education on a tablet or on a smartphone. But it's amazing to see how these young people learn using new technology. So I think today they want a hybrid model of how do you basically democratize education, give them quality education, at least on a digital platform, and then help the teachers to give them the real life experience of being in an academic setup, which is really more to do with making friends and understanding how to interact with society more than anything else. So I think this new education policy is also now inviting a lot of the foreign universities to basically set up satellite colleges in India, because that is the dream of every Indian to go and study overseas. You'll be very interested to know that we set up something called the Biocon Academy. And this is in partnership with the Keck Graduate Institute at Claremont, California. There were a lot of biotech students who kept complaining to me that they were being turned away by industry because they said, you're not industry ready. So we decided to set up a finishing school. And I did this in partnership with KGI. And we have an amazing program that we've been running for the last five years. And we've graduated over a thousand students for the uh, the biotech industry in India. And I can tell you that they are all well-placed doing great jobs in the biotech sector. I've had the honor of being able to teach school in India. Oh, wow. In many of these schools that I have visited, they are delivering what we would think of in the United States as a private school for $1,000 US a year, a year, and unheard of capabilities. When I taught math, I wanted to know what level the children were at. And so I taught children as young as five, and I've also taught in college in India. And many of the children in India are far more advanced than the children in the United States in mathematics. And as I spoke to them, their complaint was when they took those academic tests that were required, SAT, ACT, the tests were covering things that they had done in 10th grade or when they were a freshman, and they had to go back and review material that they had done two or three years earlier. They wanted to take many of their English part of the test in their senior year in high school, but they said it would have been easier if they were a freshman or sophomore taking those math tests. Of 11 countries in Asia, the number one thing that people in the middle class in India told us their number one family activity was studying with their children. I think the percentage was 27% of every middle class family wanted their child to get a PhD. Well, in the United States, just graduate degrees, not PhDs, about 7% of the population. So the aspirational nature in India of education was four times the United States. And as you've noted here, if we looked at all the companies in the last generation created in Silicon Valley, 
15 to 20% of their CEOs were born in India. And as the issue of immigration to the United States in the 2014, 15, 16 period was so vivid in this discussion, the majority and largest percentage of people that came to the United States as immigrants were either from India or China at that time. And so the U.S. has benefited greatly from the diaspora from India. And all I can think back is to the competitive exams to get into these schools, particularly the technical schools. It's fiercely competitive because, as you rightly said, it's a kind of a filtering process. You almost sort of have to get used to the fact that you're going to compete to get into the best schools in India with at least 100,000 people. That's the kind of competition for us. Th- There's a, such a disproportionate mismatch that you finally get the best of students who finally make it to all these premier institutes. So there is the IITs, the Indian Institute of Technology, from where all these guys in Silicon Valley come from. Because every one of them competed with such a huge number of uh, students. So I think you have to get the best when you finally graduate from these schools. India is such a diverse country of diverse languages, of diverse cultures. And as we drove the back roads of India, we saw cattle, of course, on the roads. But we also saw elephants and that brand new highway that you can take from Varanasi or from seeing the Taj Mahal to Delhi. It's so amazing to me. How do you bridge those hundred centuries? Well, when you live in a country like India, you're immersed in this kind of an environment, which is all the time in contradictions and in harmony with each other, if you know what I mean. That's why I think I'm very committed to compassionate capitalism, which is what I like to call my business. When people ask me, what drives you? I think it's about providing affordable access in my business to patients around the world, right? My products are there to help patients who need it anywhere in the world. And therefore, I believe that if I can actually produce these products in a way that provides affordable access to either the countries which finally give it to the patients, I think I would be very driven by that sense of purpose. It's about a billion patients, not just a billion dollars. The billions will come later, but it's about serving those billion patients first, which to me is my sense of purpose. Both you and I have taken the giving pledge because I think my own father told me money is not something that you buy favors with. It's something you you use to make a difference with. I believe in that. We want to make a difference. We want to help change this world for for the better. And so when you want to do all of that, then I think you have a very different understanding of what life is all about. And India reminds you every day what it means to be poor, what it means to be rich, what it means to be ill, what it means to be healthy. You know, it, it reminds you all the time. I can't get away for even a minute in my own country without seeing somebody who is really deprived. And you learn to accept all this together. And I think that's the melange that India is. It is about life. It teaches you many things about life because it always is constantly evoking your conscience. Americans and Europeans discovered with the coronavirus outbreak 
that many of the products that they needed and many of the ingredients that they needed were being manufactured in India today. Where do you see the future of your country as we look at this such a diverse combination of people, of religions, of cultures, with the access to capital? COVID has brought a lot of spotlight on how India should actually look at the future. We are the largest producers of vaccines in the world. We're the largest producers of generic medicines in the world. And if you actually look at, you know, just combining these aspects of the biopharmaceutical world, we only account for 3% of the value chain of the pharmaceutical industry worldwide. I said to our government and I said to our industry, there's something wrong in what we're doing. We've got to start creating value. And we've got to start leveraging our science, our technology, and really move up the innovation path. So I think that's what now India is now focusing on. For instance, vaccines, I think the whole world now realizes they've neglected zoonotic viruses and the research and innovation around zoonotic viruses for too long. Now, India is home to zoonotic viruses. You have dengue, chikungunya, now coronavirus, you, you have SARS, H1N1, you name it. It's all there. But we've done nothing to research these viruses. We've done nothing to develop new technologies or even look at new adjuvants or new formulations or new delivery systems. We can do all of that. So why not be a part of the global innovation value chain is the real way forward. And I think that's what, on top of all this, you've got IT, data analytics, data science, all this has to be a convergence of technologies. India has it. India has the largest number of medical professionals graduating every year from college. India has the largest number of engineers graduating from college every year, so on and so forth. Why are we not leveraging this talent and innovating instead of just providing services or just doing manu contract manufacturing is the question. So I think that's the path I look forward to as India the innovator and not just India the maker. I wanted to ask you about this quote, which was one of my favorite things I ever heard you say. I managed to do things with a lot of common sense, a lot of determination, and a lot of foolish courage. Tell me a little bit about that. When I think about my journey, the fact that I decided to start a business when I knew nothing about it, I think that was foolish courage because I just sort of convinced myself that I can do it, okay? And then I had not gone through any formal business education. So I just had to use common sense to figure out things. And I think that was very important I think all of us, I'm sure you yourself use a lot of common sense in making judgment calls. I don't think I've ever used a consultant to tell me how to take a decision. I've never really sort of bothered about being too analytical and do a deep dive in assessment of a certain decision I have to take. I just make a judgment call that's based on common sense. I'm very determined because I had to prove that I could do it. I had to prove to myself that I can succeed. I had to prove to the others who didn't believe in me. So I think that's the combination I've used as what drives me, if you know what I mean. You're an inspiration to me and so many others in the world. I want to wish you, your family, all the best health, 
and we look forward to what you have created here and maybe have found the solution for some of the problems with the COVID-19. Wonderful to be with you today. Thank you, Mike. This was just wonderful. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.